joining tonight. We're going to do a special reading from Glenn Beck's The Great Research. Uh, reset. <laughs> I'd say The Great Research. Um, I just wanted to add that if you haven't gotten uh, Willful Blindness, there is just a big, gutty appendix with just massive amounts of research uh, from that whole book. And it just goes on. I think there's four or five different appendices with snapshots of all the different uh, investigations, government documents, uh, historical documents from that entire um, diatribe. So I really encourage you that if you haven't gotten the book, we might actually revisit some of that um, in September um, as we get further in. Today is, today is day 80 of 100 days of call-in. Woo-woo! I'll just go ahead and give myself a little party. Um, so we've been doing this for approximately 20 days, and so we've decided to go back to some of our readings. So I'm going to read chapter 4. This is Modern Monetary Theory, Fuel for a Global Economic Takeover from The Great Reset. Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century Fascism. Okay. And I, says, and I sincerely believe with you that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies and that the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling futurity on a large scale. And that was Thomas Jefferson in a letter to John Taylor, May 28, 1816. In 1910, a U.S. Senator, Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island, the chairman of the National Monetary Committee, instructed several of America's highest-profile bankers to covertly meet at night in a train station in New Jersey. Among those who attended were Henry P. Davison, senior partner at J.P. Morgan & Company. Paul Warburg, founder of the investment firm Kuhn, Loeb & Company, Frank A. Vanderlip, vice president of the National City Bank of New York, now called Citibank, and Charles D. Norton, president of Morgan's first national bank of New York. These wealthy, extremely well-connected men, selected by Aldrich, one of them, the most powerful senator, senators of his day, were told that they must hide their identities, use only first names with each other, and dress as if they were going on a duck hunting expedition. You know, because late night duck hunting train rides are not suspicious at all. The bankers were then informed that they would be heading to a lavish resort in Georgia, on Jekyll Island, where they would join other important businessmen and policymakers to formulate a plan to reshape America's banking system. Once they arrived at Jekyll Island, hidden under a fog of secrecy, these members of America's economic elite began crafting legislation that would eventually become the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, the law that created the Federal Reserve Banks. The central banking structure of the United States, a system that has now controlled U.S. monetary policy for more than 100 years, was created by a real-life, honest-to-goodness conspiracy. The meeting at Jekyll Island was not the first time powerful bankers and government officials attempted to create a central bank. Two other prominent efforts were made to 
establish a central bank in the United States prior to the passage of the Federal Reserve Act, but both were short-lived. What made the third attempt successful, and what can we learn from this important moment in history? After the Panic of 1907, the economy of the United States was, to say at least, rattled. Unemployment was high, and the banking system was on the verge of collapse. The panic was the latest in a series of recessions that shook U.S. financial markets, prompting politicians and bankers to come up with a big government solution to deal with past and future economic upheavals, one that would provide even greater influence to the ruling class elites. Sound familiar? By 1910, increased interest in solving the perceived banking crisis developed among many of the most authoritative people on Wall Street. By in November of 1910, sorry, the Academy of Political Science at Columbia University, the New York Chamber of Commerce, and the Merchants Association of New York hosted a conference to formulate potential answers to the questions that had been plaguing bankers for decades. Economists Policy analysts and many high-level representatives from the nation's largest banks took part in the meeting, according to attendees. It was at this conference, one almost no one in America knows about today, that the real groundwork was laid for the nation's new central bank. At the end of the conference, attendees were told to spread the word and convince the American people of the need for the radical overhaul outlined there. Christopher Christopher Stewart Patterson, Dean of the University of Pennsylvania and member of the Indianapolis Monetary Commission, told those who attended the meeting, That is just what you must do in this case. You must uphold the hands of Senator Aldrich. You have to, you've got to see that the bill that which he formulates obtains the support of every part of this country. Shortly after the conference, Senator Aldrich orchestrated the meeting at Jekyll Island to develop specific legislative language for developing a new central bank, and the rest is history. The secret meetings that occurred in 1910 were not organized by globalist European elites, but they do have special relevance to the Great Reset and the topic of this chapter, Modern Monetary Theory. Had the Federal Reserve never been created, the 21st century fascism of the Great Reset would virtually be impossible to achieve because without central banks churning out trillions of new dollars, how could governments pay elites pay? How could they pay for all their shiny new socialist programs? Perhaps even more important, the events of 1910 teach us that a relatively small group of elites can and do make gargantuan history-changing alterations to global economic markets, and they can do so without most people really understanding the repercussions of their actions or even knowing that they have occurred. I'm certainly not suggesting that important decisions are made at every or even most academic conferences, but once in a while, a conference of powerful people takes place and the world suddenly changes, a fact worth remembering as the Great Reset Movement plans its next great conference of influencers in 2022. The big question. Millions of Americans face problems. Poor education, joblessness, homelessness, and a lack of affordable health care, to name a few. There is no shortage of things that could be better, and ruling class elites have no shortage of supposed solutions to these problems. Free college, 
universal basic income, government housing, and government-run healthcare. You name it, and politicians from both political parties want to provide it, and often for free. The confounding question inevitably rises, however, how are you going to pay for it? This is the question that probably used to keep elites in Washington up at night stalking their dreams like Freddy Krueger. One minute they're fantasizing about a world powered by billions of solar panels and then out of nowhere someone sporting a bladed glove asks about paying for things. Waking politicians, lobbyists, and solar power business executives from their great reset slumber. In the past, policy proposals would be rejected frequently because they were considered too expensive. To fund their pet projects, lawmakers routinely would have to search for what congressional insiders call pay-fors, which often come in the shape of new taxes or increases in, in exact existing tax rates. Political candidates would cobble together schemes for how they could theoretically fund all the programs they promised to pass if elected. This boogeyman struck the deep blue state of Vermont in 2014. Soon after passing a state-level universal health care plan, then-Governor Peter Shumlin was distraught to find his teen had failed to craft a realistic plan to pay for the ambitious project. It turned out that any state plan to fund the government-run health care system would have required massive tax increases that would have put the state at risk, quote, of risk of economic shock. Shumlin was eventually forced to abandon the planned universal health care program, a movie called The Greatest Disappointment of My Political Life So Far, end quote. Shumlin's single-payer health care debacle shows just how powerful the how-are-you-going-to-pay-for-it question has been in U.S. politics even recently. This single-payer program failed in Bernie Sanders' home state of Vermont, perhaps the most liberal state in America, even though there was plenty of political demand for government-run health care and a governor who campaigned and won his election by promising to enact a plan just like it. Yet Green Mountain Care still went belly up because no one could figure out how to pay for it. Even on a national level, massive price tags have rendered countless proposals dead on arrival in recent years. One of the most notable examples is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. This monster of a plan included a wish list for many on the left, including 100% renewable energy, universal health care, a federal jobs guarantee, a college debt cancellation, but like Shumlin's single-payer health care dreams, the Green New Deal was murdered by sticker shock. And even many Democrats ended up rejecting the proposal because of its high expenses. The Green New Deal non-binding resolution failed to earn a single vote in the U.S. Senate, and it was never approved by the Democrat-led House of Representatives. The American Action Forum ran the numbers on the Green New Deal. When all was said and done, AAF determined that Ocasio-Cortez's plan could cost upward of $94 trillion over just 10 years. That is the equivalent of cutting every single American a check to the tune of $280,000. I'll take what's behind door number two, Monty. Again, 
Think about the power of asking, how are you going to pay for it? The Green New Deal did not die in the Democratic-controlled House because of its more unpopular provisions. It was also not because of the economic harm that would result from enacting the plan in states like Pennsylvania and Colorado, nor the environmental destruction that comes along with relying completely on energy sources like wind and solar, which we unpacked in the previous chapter. No, it was the $94 trillion number that dominated the headlines. The plan was so expensive, Nancy Pelosi even stopped supporting it. Now that is really saying something. Why is the pay-for-it question so politically important? The answer is probably obvious to most of the people reading this book because money and resources are scarce. We have a limited supply of wealth, labor, and time which makes it valuable. This is a basic truth that is pervasive in economics and is even part of its definition. As Investopedia puts it, economics is the study of how people allocate scarce resources for production, distribution, and consumption both individually and collectively. Scarcity is the cornerstone upon which everything else in economics is built. Fundamental principles like supply and demand, Price signals and opportunity cost are all anchored to this one core concept. Dealing with scarcity has always been a gigantic problem for elites in the Democratic and Republican parties looking to use government to build massive new programs. How can they possibly overcome this economic obstacle? Well, they could raise taxes on the middle and upper classes, but that only works to an extent. Eventually, people feel taxed enough already don their tricorn hats and throw politicians out of power. Of course, policymakers could tax the rich, but even that eventually fails too as wealthy people find ways to stash their cash overseas and or move their businesses out of high tax regions. Sometimes governments simply resort to force. They cannot figure out a good way of taxing people, so they just steal property nationalize industries, and even throw people in prison. Some of that's already happening. Although that option is always on the table, the advent of the 24-hour cable news cycle really makes full-blown persecution more difficult than it used to be. Don't you miss the good old days when dictators could mass murder people without news crews getting in the way? To advance programs that centralize power in the hands of the ruling class, while winning over Main Street Americans, elites needed something much stronger than tax increases, but not as overtly authoritarian as gulags. And they found their answer in the allure of the modern monetary theory, MMT. MMT has already been adopted by governments all over the world. Although you will not find leaders spending much time talking about it. And it is currently an important part of the strategy that supporters of the Great Reset are using to help usher in their transformation of the global economy. Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. My first real taste of modern monetary theory came in March 2019, a town hall event on education policy in Brooklyn, New York. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, took the stage to espouse the merits of increasing educational opportunities for more people in the city. A constituent in the crowd then began to raise his or her voice. It is hard to make out what the heckler was saying, 
but you can bet it's a ver version of the big question discussed in the previous section. AOC's shouting response was revealing. My concern is that this right here, what we're fighting each other, is exactly what happens under a scarcity mindset. In the minds of AOC and a growing number of other politicians in Washington, D.C., humans have essentially reached a post-scarcity world. We can have anything we want and more of it if we just exert our political wills hard enough. In their worldview, the how are you going to pay for a question is outdated. It belongs in the dustbin of history, alongside the horse and buggy. Instead of paying for things, policymakers should dig up traditional economic cornerstones and cast them aside in favor of nearly unlimited government spending. Some might be tempted to write off AOC's view on government spending and scarcity as it is incredibly uncommon and thus not worth serious consideration or concern. However, there is an entire movement of academics who champion this new way of looking at scarcity as it relates to monetary policy. The modern monetary theory movement, and although its membership remains relatively small, it has, it has had, because of the important implications of its beliefs, a tremendous and far-reaching impact on public policy over the past few years. Currently, the face of modern monetary theory is Stephanie Kelton, a professor of public policy and economics at Stony Brook University. Kelton is about as well-connected as, as an economist can be. In 2015, she served as the chief economist of the Democratic Party's staff on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. Kelton was also senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns, and a member of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders' uh, 2020 Unity Task Force, which was given the responsibility of reforming the platforms of the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party. Additionally, Kelton is the author of the popular new MMT book, The De Deficit Myth. Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. More on Kelton's book later. Other notable MMT economists include L. Randall Ray, Professor of Economics at Bard College, and Pavlina Cechnerva, a Program Director and Associate Professor of Economics at Bard College and a Research Associate at the Levy Economics Institute. If you read my previous books, or book, Arguing with Socialists, some of this might sound familiar to you, but stick with me because there's plenty of new information in this chapter to keep this refresher course entertaining, enlightening, and important. Modern monetary theory might sound complicated, but it is actually very simple. According to MMT theorists, Everyone should stop worrying so much about the national debt and deficits because the U.S. government can print and spend as much money as it wants in order to achieve the goals set by the federal government's bureaucratic masterminds and political elite. And that's pretty much it. When most people first hear about modern monetary theory, they usually say something like, that's a bunch of malarkey. Actually, almost no one under the age of 100 says malarkey. Sorry, Joe Biden, but you get the idea. 
As with so many other concepts I'm going to discuss throughout this book, try to, to, try to avoid dismissing MMT as a crackpot theory that no reasonable person would ever try to implement. MMT is appealing to many because of its potential to dramatically increase the power of government and fatten the pockets of the corporate class, not because it's supported by history or because of its academic merits. Also, I'm sure you already know politicians and bureaucrats are often anything but reasonable. How MMT works. It is hard to ignore election season. There is a steady stream of political ads on every television and radio station, candidate lawn signs that pop up and never seem to be taken down on time, and heated shouting matches at family gatherings. No, you're the racist, Uncle Ned. Ah, politics is fun, right? In addition to all the screaming and terrible campaign ads, election season is also a time when Americans are reminded about how the U.S. national debt and annual deficits have grown out of control. Even Barack Obama positioned himself at first as a fiscal hawk when campaigning in 2008. During one stop in Fargo, North Dakota, then-candidate Obama complained the spending practices of President George W. Bush's administration, which had added $4 trillion to the national debt over Bush's two terms in office, were so out of hand that they had become unpatriotic. Unpatriotic. I guess that makes the multi-trillion dollar deficits of 2020 look like an act of economic terrorism. As strange as it might sound, supporters of the modern monetary theory have criticized Obama for pointing out George W. Bush's spending problems and even have suggested that one of Obama's biggest mistakes as president was not spending enough money. Yes, he read that correctly. According to MMT, Barack Obama the man who presided over the largest addition to the national debt in history prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, should have spent trillions more following the 2008 financial crisis, and he shouldn't have lost a wink of sleep over it. Under modern monetary theory, because the United States is a currency issuer, there is no danger that the country will ever become insolvent. The federal government has a monopoly on dollar production money printing, so it cannot run out of money. Thus, MMT advocates say, if we need more cash, all the government must do is turn on the printing presses, or more accurately, move numbers around on an electronic spreadsheet. In a 2019 interview with CNBC, Kelton explained this idea more completely, highlighting the distinction between a money user and a money issuer. MMT starts with a really simple observation, and that is that the U.S. dollar is a simple public monopoly. In other words, the United States currency comes from the United States government, and it can't come from anywhere else, and therefore it can never run out of money. It cannot face a solvency problem, bills coming due that it can't afford to pay. It never has to worry about finding the money in order to be able to spend doesn't need to go and raise taxes or borrow money before it's able to spend. 
So what that means is that the federal government is nothing like a household. In order for households or private businesses to be able to spend, they've got to come up with the money, right? And the federal government doesn't have to behave like a household. In fact, it becomes really destructive for the economy if the government tries to behave like a household. You and I are using the U.S. dollar. States and municipalities, the state of Kansas or Detroit, they're also using the U.S. dollar. Private businesses are using the dollar. The federal government of the United States is issuing our currency, and so we have a very different relationship to the currency. That means in order to spend, in order to spend, the government doesn't have to do what a household or a private business has to do, find the money. The government has to simply spend the money into the economy and when it does, the rest of us end up receiving that spending as part of our income. According to Kelton, the federal government doesn't have to behave like a household. As we have all been told for years by countless politicians, including Obama, they have all gotten it wrong. Under Kelton's theory, the Federal Reserve me. should effectively give the government a hall pass to spend as much money as it wants. Doesn't that sound great? Free ponies for everyone. Scratch that. Make it two ponies. I'm feeling generous. You're probably wondering, but what about the national debt? The U.S. debt has already surpassed $28 trillion. At this rate, it could be a quadrillion t by the time this book goes out to the printer. Won't that have some serious long-term consequences for the economy? Fret not, Kelton says. The national debt is just a number. Let's remember what the national debt is. Let's remember what the national debt is. Is Kelton said in an interview with CNBC. The national debt is nothing more than a historical record of all the dollars that the government spent into the economy and didn't tax back that are currently being held in the form of safe U.S. treasuries. Under MMT, debt and deficits are nothing to fear. They are encouraged, Kelton explained. Normally, I think people tend to hear deficit and think it's something we should strive to eliminate that we shouldn't be running budget deficits, that they're evidence of fiscal irresponsibility, and the truth is the deficit can be too big. The evidence of a deficit that's too big would be inflation. But the deficit can also be too small. It can be too small to support a demand in the economy, and evidence of a deficit that is too small is underemployment. Unemployment, sorry unemployment. So deficits can be too big, but they can also be too small. And the right level of the deficit is the one that gets you balanced overall economy. The one that allows you to achieve high levels of employment and low inflation. Sorry, low inflation. As Kelton noted, modern monetary theory supporters believe deficit spending should be used to reach full employment that's not where deficit spending should end. MMTers say it should also be used to achieve every other goal at least have had for society. In 2019, 
An article for Barron's writer Matthew Klein compared MMT to a peacetime version of a wartime economic management. And he suggested MMTers believe governments can do whatever is necessary to satisfy the public purpose, as long as they maintain their authority over the populace. Just imagine all the things the government could do if it were not limited by that looming big question, should we cancel all student loan debt no matter how rich the borrower is? Why not? Debt and deficits don't matter. Should we pass a $94 trillion Green New Deal? Why not? Debt and deficits don't matter. Should we continue to nation build around the world? Why not? Debts and deficits don't matter. Modern monetary theory is the perfect tool for politicians who make grandiose promises without any plan to pay for them, which is just about every politician these days. So I'm going to end it at that note. We're going to continue tomorrow. I need to pre-promote Naomi Wolf will be here tomorrow at 4 p.m. So from 4 to 4.30 Central Standard Time, we are going to interview Ms. Wolf on Justin Trudeau's <clears throat> Global Identity Plan. So um, we are going to be sending sources and then get ready to listen and discuss um, after she departs because she doesn't necessarily take callers. So thank you for listening. Uh, this has been The Unsanctioned Citizen. Thanks for staying tuned for day 80 of 100 Days of Colin and our Unsanctioned Your Mind Summer 2022 reading series, The Great Reset. Select readings from Glenn Beck. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com. <laughs>